But it's good to be here. It's good to uh, get to open the Word of God with you all this morning. We're going to be getting back to our, our series of the Defiant Incarnation, walking through the Gospel of John. Last week, Joey kind of jumped forward in, in the book of John, in, into John 20, to specifically talk about the resurrection for Easter. Uh, I had talked to Joey and said that I didn't think we should be giving away the whole story right up front, the ending halfway through, but you know he didn't seem to mind, uh, so he did that. But this week, we're jumping back into John 12. Uh, Joey did preach a couple of weeks ago on the passage right before where we're, we'll be this morning, um, but specifically this morning, we're looking at verses 20 through 26 that Dave uh, read earlier. In the passage that Joey preached on a couple of weeks ago, just to kind of set the context for what we're walking into today, Jesus entered Jerusalem. Towards the end of his ministry, he enters Jerusalem. The people are going crazy. They've witnessed him raise Lazarus from the dead. They're celebrating Jesus, laying things, uh, laying palm branches down. Jesus is walking in, in this very triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all the while, the Pharisees are just getting more and more angry at what's happening because they, they, they're, they're starting to realize that maybe they picked the wrong side of this story. Does that kind of sum it up, Joey? Anything else we need to throw in there? Okay, I think we're good. So before we get into the passage this morning, let's pray. Holy God, I just come before you this morning and, and, and honestly pray that your, your words be spoken here, that not mine be spoken, that, that this not be a message about what I think needs to be said, but that your word and what you've done and what you've said as recorded in John 12, that that be spoken this morning, that be what touches lives, that be what transforms hearts, God. We need that to happen. We beg that that would be the case, that that would happen, that would occur, and and all for your glory and for our joy this morning. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. So we will read the passage again. It's a short one, but uh, I think it's good, even though we just read it a, a little bit ago. This is uh, John twelve twenty. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So I don't know about you, but when I first read this passage, one of my very first questions about it was, who are these Greeks? Like, think about it. I mean, it somewhat seems, at least, to be somewhat random that these Greeks are even mentioned on the front end. You read the passage, in some ways it doesn't seem that the Greeks even really matter a whole lot to the story and to what Jesus 
says. And Jesus himself doesn't even respond directly to them. The Scripture does say that he answered them, but he, he answers them by rolling off this message uh, about losing your life. But we aren't even told that they actually have a question for Jesus. So again, who are these Greeks? Who are they and how are they relevant to our story? That was one of my initial questions in, in, in thinking through this passage. Well, actually, there's a few things going on here specifically with the Greeks being involved. And we actually have to jump back just a, a verse before this passage to, to grab some of it. And in verse 19, we read this. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And now in the very next verse, we see these somewhat random Greeks requesting a meeting with Jesus. But from a literary perspective, you can see how these Greeks would actually symbolize the world, going back to verse 19. That they would actually be symbolic of the world flocking to Jesus and being attracted to him. So the Pharisees are sitting there and they're watching this happen. They're watching this occur. That not only are, are their own people being attracted to Jesus, but now what's happening is those even outside the nation of Israel are being attracted to Jesus. Additionally, John's gospel really is one of, or or is the most outward focused of the four gospels. John was very intentional in his writing that he wanted his gospel specifically to be understandable and relatable to those outside of Israel, to the non-Jew. You know, Matthew and Mark, especially, and even Luke, uh, their audiences were pretty Jewish in nature, and so their Gospels took that, that tone. But John's Gospel uh, was much more focused on Gentiles or non-Jews. And so you can see why he would be determined to include this, to include this idea of Greeks coming to Jesus. Once again, those outside the nation of Israel are interested in who Jesus was and attracted to what he's saying. But we still haven't answered the question of, who are these Greeks? Honestly, it's a little hard to say. We don't know exactly who these Greeks are. They came to worship at the Jewish festival. We know that. But there is a telling aspect to uh, their request of Jesus. See, the, 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 the word that's used there about that they want to see Jesus. The Greek word for to see, actually in this context, takes on more of a, uh, of a reality of they want to interview Jesus. Not only do they just want to see him, but they actually want to interview him. They want to kind of probe him and, and, and know a little bit more about who he is and what he's, what he's said. The reason that we know that, we see the same word over in Luke, in Luke 9. And in that situation, what's happening is is Herod has heard about the ministry of Jesus. And he's getting curious because people are starting to go a little wild about it. And they're talking about how Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And so, specifically in Luke 9.9, it says that Herod wanted to see Jesus. I think you can imagine that he didn't just want to see Jesus. He didn't want to just hang out with Jesus. He wanted to interview Jesus, and maybe even worse. So that's how we can see that here in 
John 12, these Greeks seem to want a bit more from Jesus than just seeing him. And this wasn't an uncommon occurrence given the nature of, of who the Greeks are. I mean, the Greeks had a, a specific um, reputation, if you will, of just being truth seekers, being those that like to seek out truth from wherever it might be, wherever it, they could find it, from religion to religion. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody ever heard of this mentality of trying to find truth wherever it might be, wherever it might be out there in the, in the clouds, from religion to religion? Some, you know, all religions have some truth, and it's just a matter of finding it all through all of the religions. You know, it's that idea of we're, we're just all on a journey, and we're seeking, we're all seeking truth, but you can't ever claim to have actually found truth, because then you're arrogant. This is, this is a Greek mentality. This goes all the way back. This isn't just Bostonian culture. You might think that's just a Bostonian thing, but these Greeks would fit right in with 2013 Bostonian spirituality, because that's that's the idea going on here. They love the idea of truth just being out there from religion to religion. And now that we've tried to identify a bit more about these Greeks, we continue on in the passage, and we get to Jesus' response to, to them, just to them even requesting time with him. Again, we're not told that the Greeks actually got to speak with Christ, but it does say uh, that he answers them. And Jesus answers them, in just about the most dramatic way he possibly could have. So it might not appear so at at first sight. I know I didn't see it when I first read through the passage. But Jesus' response in verse 23 is incredibly dramatic. This is what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment that the Jews have been waiting for. This is the the statement that they are waiting for. To a a Jewish ear of Jesus' day, they hear two things right here. Son of man and glorified. Son of man, glorified. And I think it's, it's great for us to unpack that a little bit and what that means. First of all, son of man. The Son of Man, saying that the Son of Man title for Jesus was kind of important or somewhat important, it's kind of like saying that the Bosox last year were kind of bad. They were kind of terrible. That Beckett and his chicken wings, that was just kind of bad. If you say that to a true Bosox fan, they're going to immediately know you have no idea what you're talking about. Because Beckett was eating his chicken wings while he should have been playing. And that was terrible. And we can't have that happen here in Red Sox Nation. So the people that would might say the Son of Man title is just somewhat important don't know what the Son of Man title meant to a Jewish ear. The Son of Man title was really actually Jesus' choice of titles for himself. It's the one that he used the most whenever he would refer to himself. He would use others. But the Son of Man seemed to be his favorite. And I think it's good for us to 
kind of look at really the most significant passage in Scripture that speaks to this, that builds this framework for people to have this idea of Son of Man. Dave actually read this on the front end, but I want to read just a couple of those verses again. This is from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Israelites had taken this to mean, along with other passages, uh, some in Daniel, they had taken this to mean that there would be this kind of Israelite conquering hero of sorts that would arrive on the scene destroy all other kingdoms and immediately enthrone himself, bring the nation of Israel into a a new world power, and that would just be the rest of eternity. You think about Gladiator meets Braveheart meets Superman, and that's kind of the idea we're going with here. And I'm I'm talking Christopher Reeve's Superman. I'm not talking 2010 lame-o Superman. Christopher Reeve style. Superman. That's what Jewish people are thinking when they hear Son of Man. That this character would arrive on the scene and dominate. Arrive on the scene and take over the show. The second thing that they hear here is glorified. That's what uh, uh, they're, they're, they're getting amped up because they hear Son of Man and they have this idea of who the Son of Man is that he's this conquering hero, and that he's going to rescue the nation. And then they hear glorified. So you can begin to see from verse 23, Jesus' response, why his audience, why people there listening to him, his own followers that had been with him even, would be getting pretty amped up at this point, pretty excited about what he's talking about and how he's responding to these Greeks. And just when the expectations of the people couldn't be any higher, Jesus follows it up with verse 24. There we read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus follows up a saying about Son of Man glorified with his audience thinking, okay, Caesar's about to fall off his throne because Jesus is about to chop his head off and we're going to be the the powers, you know, we're going to be the one power of the world after this all goes down. He follows that up with a verse and and a saying about death. You know, a couple of months ago, uh, Jess and I, uh, started watching this show. We actually had had a DVR. It's called the. Uh, it was called Last Resort. I don't know if any of you watched it, but we we had had like the whole season DVR'd, and so we kind of waited till we had a lot of them, um, and we really just kind of watched the whole season in like two weeks, I think. But we were getting really into this show, you know, and and it was the first season, so the whole time we're thinking, man, we 
you know, we kind of got in on the show on the front end. Now we get to, you know, sit in and watch it for a couple of years to come, you know, see how long it goes or whatever. And so we're getting towards the end of the season. We've watched, I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes. And the last this, uh, season finale comes on, and we start watching it. And halfway through, we start to wonder, is this the, is this the season finale or is this the series finale? Because, like, all the storylines that they had built up throughout the whole season, they're all starting to, like, close. You know how this happens in a, in a series finale? They've got to close everything up. You've got to finish the story. And we find out that we watch this finale. The show's over. It's been canceled for, like, two months, and we just had no idea that this had happened. We were, you know, getting pretty stoked about watching this show, but it just ended. We, we you know, ten minutes uh, in, in the end of the show, and everything's done. Get online, the show's been canceled. We were obviously disappointed, but the people of Jesus' day have to be exponentially more disappointed with what they're hearing come, coming from Jesus because they have these expectations of who He's supposed to be and what He's supposed to accomplish. But you see, in spite of all the expectations that surrounded Him, Jesus knows about all of these expectations. But in spite of all of them, Jesus knew that it was only through His death that any could be redeemed to God. Jesus knew that only through His death could any be redeemed to God. He knew that without His death, all hope for humanity is gone. All hope for humanity is lost without his death. So he uses this metaphor with with the people that he's addressing. He uses a metaphor that they are very familiar with, that they know on a regular, daily basis. Agriculture in Israel was a huge deal in Jesus' day. Even to this day, in modern-day Israel, it's still still one of the the biggest uh, industries in the country. And so Jesus uses... Uh, this metaphor to speak to the people. Because at this point, Jesus is actually having to kind of defend what he's saying. He, he's, he's having uh, to speak against their expectations. He's arguing his point that his death is actually necessary in spite of what they might be expecting from him. That's his challenge here at this point in the conversation. He has to convince a people that's amped up for world dominance that the actual, actually the most po- uh, powerful option on the table is death. The most powerful option to Christ and for the Son of Man to be glorified is actually death. Christ could have done whatever He wanted at this point. I mean, we have to keep that in mind that as he's talking about death and he ultimately obviously would go to his death, Christ could do anything he wanted. He he could call in legions of angels. He could sweep Caesar off his throne. He could sit on his throne, become king of the earth, reign forever. He could do whatever he wanted at this point. But if he had... If he had chosen that option, the option that his, his own people wanted him to do, 
be no gospel. We'd all be sitting here dead in our sin. If Christ had chosen the option that the people wanted him to choose, there'd be no hope for humanity. I wouldn't be up here preaching about a God that for some amazing unknown reason has showered grace on his people through faith. No, I'd be talking about a really cool earthly king named Jesus that had done amazing things throughout history, but I'd still be trying to hope and figure out what could be done about our sin and our separation from God. Praise God this isn't the case. Praise God that Jesus recognized and knew that he had to go to the cross. Because if he didn't, none could be redeemed to God. So this is enough, right? I mean, we've, I don't know how long I've, I've been up here, but this is, that's kind of a full message. I could stop right here and we could pray it up and get out of here maybe a little early. If only we could. But Jesus doesn't stop his message there. He doesn't stop with with just saying that and talking about death in relation to himself. He doesn't stop there. Because in verse 25 and following, he flips this reality of death back on us. He makes it real to us, this idea that he's been all along up to this point talking about in terms of his own death. He now turns on us. Let's read verse 25. It says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What? I mean, if you read that and you think through, like, don't read it as Scripture and Holy Word of God. I mean, it is Holy Word of God. But if you read that, you're just sitting in a classroom and you read that, your reaction is probably, what? This is crazy talk. I mean, think about it. This is crazy talk. Go ahead. I mean, you, you might think I'm blasphemous right now, but that's, it's crazy talk on the surface when you, when you think about what he's talking about here. I mean, it's completely paradoxical. It's completely counterintuitive. This idea of whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life actually saves it and keeps it for eternity. I mean, has anyone in history ever really expressed this idea before Christ? I don't know. I don't think so. And so we can't blame uh, people of, of Jesus' day and even today for, for wondering, what is he talking about? That's incredibly baffling on the surface. Like, it's, it's hard to think about. Uh, I, I spent some time, honestly, this week, digesting this. What does it mean to, to, to hate your life for the kingdom of God? What does that look like? I really tried to get to the bottom of that, and, and to be honest, it was, it was difficult. It was really difficult at times. But I did, I, I spent some time, I wrote out some, some things to say. Uh, I spent a couple of hours really studying it, thinking about it, wrote out some things to say. But then that night even, I was going to sleep, and I just thought, 
what am I doing? What, why am I trying to explain this idea that I'm obviously having difficulty articulating and I don't really feel like I'm, I'm communicating what Christ is talking about? Why am I doing it this way when there's somebody that has already spoken of this idea, somebody that's much more qualified than I could ever be to speak about hating your life for the mission of God? And I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, lived a life that was incredible in terms of the way in which he had abandoned his life for the mission of God. And we're fortunate enough that Christ put, or not Christ, that, that Paul put down some of these thoughts in writing. He did so uh, a number of times, but in his letter to the Philippians, he talks about it a number of times. And so I just want to read a couple of verses quickly uh, from this. This is Philippians 1, 21 through 23. For, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What Paul talks about here in Philippians 1 is one of the most amazing ideas in all of Scripture. His first phrase for to me, to live is Christ. Paul is saying that his life after the gospel is so wrapped up and connected to Christ that in essence, he is a reflection of Christ. That his life has become that. He makes this confident and bold claim about his life, not out of arrogance, not out of pride, but out of humility and honestly wanting to serve those that he was leading, that he was pastoring. And that's why he says this. You know, I think it's Paul's words in Philippians, this idea of to live is Christ and to die is gain, must have really been the same mindset for some of the very early missionaries to Africa. And we're talking 1700s and 1800s, but there is... There's documented stories of missionaries, young missionaries, that would actually pack everything that they were going to take on their mission, on their journey. They would pack what they had in coffins. They would, they would know that what they were doing, that signing up for the mission of God and the way that they were doing so, meant the end of their life at some point on a continent away from their home, that they were never coming back home. And so they would, they would actually pack their belongings in coffee. It's, incredible, it's an incredible idea to think about, to give our lives in such a way to the gospel and to Jesus in the way in which Paul did and the way in which these missionaries did. But you might also be sitting here thinking, which I think is completely understandable, that Joffrey, this is just an impossible calling that you're putting on us right now. You might be thinking, you know, it's great to hear about Paul. It's great to hear about missionaries that packed their stuff in coffins, moved to Africa knowing that they were going to die there for the gospel. 
You might just be thinking, you know, this is impossible. It's great to hear about them, but it's also a little depressing when you think about it because I'm not that way. I don't live a life that is that obedient to Jesus and to his gospel. And the fact of the matter is you're right. You're completely right that this calling that we're talking about in John 12 that Jesus puts on his listeners, that he puts on all of his followers, completely impossible. It's completely impossible. The great thing is, is that Jesus knew that. That Jesus recognized that as he was giving this calling to his people, he knew this is impossible. That this cannot be accomplished apart from Christ. The thing that he's calling us to do, to live our lives fully committed and abandoned to the gospel is completely impossible apart from Christ. And Jesus knew this. And the reason that we know that Jesus knew this is that almost in the same breath, He promises what He does in verse 26. There Jesus says this, If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And where I am, there will My servant be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor him. This is amazing news. This is incredible news that Jesus recognized that the calling He was placing on His people was impossible. It's so intense. But He is still the same. He's still calling us to it. To live lives abandoned to the Gospel. That in His terms, that we would hate our life in the biblical sense. We would hate our life for the Gospel. It's impossible. We can't do it except with Christ. Christ recognized this as He was calling His people and calling His followers to this. Jesus, or, Jesus, Joey hit hard on this uh, just last week in talking about the presence of Jesus and what that looked like, what that is. Specifically, He talked about how heaven is made heaven by the presence of Jesus. When you think about it from that perspective, Jesus is promising us heaven. He's promising us His presence. That as we follow Him, that as we take on this impossible calling, this impossible challenge, that He would walk with us each and every step of the way. As we've walked through this passage today, I, you know, I hope that you've seen two things. I hope that you've seen that Jesus recognized that it was only by His death, it was only by Him going to the cross, being nailed to a tree, giving Himself over to death, that any would be redeemed to God. He recognized that. He communicates that here in this passage. And secondly, that Jesus also knew that the calling that He then puts on us, this calling of hating our life for the sake of the Gospel, that it's an impossible calling, that we can't fulfill it without Christ, but that He, in, again, the very next breath, He promises His presence to those that would follow after Him. He follow, or, or He promises 
that those that follow him would be with him. That's an incredible, amazing promise. We really couldn't ask for more. And I pray that we would take this to heart, that we would recognize that as we pursue God, it's going to be impossible, it's going to be hard, but Jesus promises to be with us each and every step of the way. Let's pray.